Survive and Thrive is an independent program produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Johnson & Johnson Vision. Welcome to Ophthalmology Off the Grid, Survive and Thrive. This is Dr. Gary Wirtz, and I'm really excited about our conversation tonight. It's one that uh, we all think about when we're residents. It um, can, can be a little anxiety uh, pretty, you know, promoting in, in a lot of cases, but the topic tonight is the job hunt trying to find your first job, negotiating that contract, figuring out how to do that, and all the pearls and pitfalls. Um, I have four wonderful guest hosts with me tonight, uh, as always. Uh, David Felstead, Nandini Venkateswaran, Dr. Sherry Fathy, and Dr. Dagny Zhu. And so, y'all, how's it going tonight? Are we getting ready for Christmas? David, you doing good, yep. buddy? Kids are getting all geared up and ready. Good, Got some Legos good. under the tree for them. Excellent. Excellent. So the job hunt is something that when we're in residency, and again, I'm, I'm getting a little, little beyond that, but the anxiety I remember very clearly. And uh, we've got one resident and a couple of young docs here who um, are going to share their stories about their job hunt. Um, Sheree is just sort of starting that process, but I'm going to pitch a crazy idea. I think it's almost impossible to know or to even forecast whether your first job is going to be one that you're, that is going to check all your boxes and, and going to be your forever home. I, we were talking earlier and I said, I think it's almost as likely as your first date becoming your spouse. You know, you're just trying to figure out what things you're looking for. And it's really hard to know if before you start at a place and you sign a contract, if, if that place is going to be the right fit. So I was saying that I think there should be almost like a, like an NBA draft where residents sort of get drafted. They get a four-year contract. They sort of figure, figure things out. And um, after that, they become uh, a free agent. Um, I'm really just joking about that. But it's really, really hard, I think, for ophthalmology residents to, to determine their value and to negotiate for that. So we're going to just talk about this from a lot of different angles um, I want to start. Um, I'm going to start with Nandini. Um, Nandini has recently um, finished her fellowship at Duke. She's now at Mass Ioneer. She stayed in academia, and so Nandini, tell us a little bit about you know your job hunt when you were a fellow or even as a resident. Um, just walk us through you know kind of your process and what you were thinking and how things developed. Yeah. So. I started my job hunt in fellowship. Uh, I know some people, you know, start towards the, you know, the end of their third year of residency, but I didn't start thinking about it till probably two to three months into fellowship. So I remember I started talking to, you know, my mentors around the end of August, like two months into fellowship about, okay, what should I do? Where should I apply? How does this whole process work? And I was picking the brains of, you know, all of my friends who had recently actually started their first one to two years of practice. And for myself, I was pretty, you know, okay with either private or academic. I could very well see myself in either, you know, arena. And so I, I pretty much targeted to a few private practices, a few academic centers, and really leveraged the support of, you know, senior ophthalmologists that I knew who were looking for a position or were interested in, you know, hiring a cornea and refractive surgeon. And so, you know, I, I went on a few interviews, got a sense of the different institutions, the different practices. And ultimately, when it came down to my decision, 
that was the most challenging part because we're all used to being in a match. We, we make a list and you know fate has it as to where we're supposed to end up. And now for the first time, we actually have say in what we want and where we could potentially go. And one of my mentors gave me really good advice. He was like, think of three separate categories. And one would be location and social life. The other would be professional growth. And the third would be you know finances and productivity and make a one to three scale and rank each of those categories for you know, their number, and then whichever place just rises to the top is most likely what your gut is going for. Because I think each of those categories is so critical. When, when you think about location, once again, in training, we all go to residency or fellowship, essentially where we match. And that could be where we want to be geographically, or it could be different. And so this is your opportunity to perhaps be closer to family, closer to family and friends, be in a location where you can do more of your extracurriculars, meet like-minded individuals, and from a professional growth standpoint, you know, is the practice or the academic institution going to be giving you the opportunities that you're looking for, your patient mix, your procedures that you want to perform, the new technologies that you could potentially implement? Um, how can you grow? Can you grow as a surgeon and a clinician? Can you expand your skill set? That's important for you to understand. And lastly, financially, I mean, productivity becomes a really important, you know, question for you. We all have, a lot of us have loans. We have families to kind of start bringing up and, you know, can we be productive? Can we make money? Are there opportunities for us to, you know, start to, you know, bring that bank account up? And I think that's very important, understanding how that structure works for each of those um, job offers and seeing which one aligns with your interests. And so for me, ultimately, Mass Lineer uh, ranked the highest in all of those categories. And I, I spend a lot of time thinking about it. And I don't think there's any perfect answer. People were telling me, you know, 75 to 80% of people leave their first job. And we were talking about this before, as ophthalmologists, we're, we're always striving to be the best, right? We want to make the most perfect decision and we want to get it right on the first shot. It's like doing a FACO and putting in a trifocal. You're not going to get that wrong. Um, but you know, it happens. And so I think it's completely okay to be unsure, even when you sign that contract. But if you're in your heart, feel like it was the best choice at that moment, and you make the best of it, and you make the opportunities for yourself, um, you'll be very successful in any job. No, I think that's, those are really great points. I want to remind um, those who are tuning in through Facebook Live, um, if you have questions, uh, please forward those to us. Uh, we'll try to answer those uh, online as best we can. Um, but you, you bring up a really good point about those three different categories. And if you're not just completely financially strapped, which coming out of residency, I was married. I had two kids in private school, actually. So I was actually paying private tuition while I was still taking on, you know, the debt of being a resident. Um, and David can feel that pain, I'm sure, with four kids. So everyone's, you know, story is a little bit different. But I didn't have the luxury of really thinking about professional development or, I mean, I kind of had location because I wanted to be around, you know, family. So that was important. Um, but I was really just thinking about like, how can I get, you know, get my debt paid off and how can I kind of get financially free? I think if that's not a huge um, motivating factor, if you're in a little bit different situation, I would actually probably put location number one and professional development opportunity number two. And then finances can be a third. It doesn't have to be like it's, it's, it's a horrible financial thing. But ultimately, when you're young and starting out, what you want most is a really nice guaranteed salary. Like that's the thing that you're like starving for. But in terms of like your long-term like career prospects, it makes no sense to build a practice in a place that you don't want to be in. 
right? Like every time you start over and it'll happen a couple of times. So don't feel bad if you have to do this, but you're kind of really just like starting from scratch. You're meeting the technicians again. You are, you know, meeting the practice manager. You're trying to figure out who you can trust. You're trying to figure out how you get on insurance plans. And, you know, the transition of starting a new job, there's just a lot to that. So you do want to kind of minimize that if you can. So I think it's very important though, that you're in a place that you want to be in. And then whatever you build, you at least are building in a place that you ultimately, you know, it's not a non-starter to be like, okay, I can live here. And then the money will come, especially if the professional development is there, because as your skills improve and broaden and deepen, you're going to make more money because your skill set is, you're going to really find a niche, a niche for yourself. Um, David, you know, your, your story is probably kind of similar to mine and, you know, it's playing out in its first year right now. So we're in, in a year of a worldwide pandemic, which is insane. And I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry. You've also had, I know some, some family challenges that have, have sort of helped or sort of guided your decisions. And I was just wondering if you'd be willing to kind of share your story in, in terms of, you know, your journey, just what, like what Nandini did. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Um, so I, I'm a little bit different from all the panelists. Um, so I had my heart set on a refractive fellowship and I wanted to do just as many procedures as possible and get proficient in a lot of different things. Um, I wanted to work in industry. And so, you know, I started applying for all those things looking at fellowships. And then I realized stacking up the economics, it just wasn't adding up for four kids, a wife that stayed at home. Um, we just sort of needed to get out and make money. And so I decided, well, you know, I've looked at other people, including you, Gary, um, who have gone out and learned the refractive um, with a good mentor. And so I started looking for good mentors in locations where I knew I could get busy quick. Um, and as the year progressed, I realized that, you know, I just, I need to find someone that's going to really help me. Um, so around November, we found somebody that we just thought, well, this is perfect. It's a great fit. Um, we're going to do well here. And so we signed the contract. Um, and at that same time, my wife's brother developed GBM. And uh, they caught it early. They did a subtotal resection. And we thought, okay, we've got some time on our hands. Um, you know, he's going to be around a little longer. And then December hit right before Christmas. Um, and he called and said he had a second recurrence. And this time it was um, rip roaring. And at that point, we really questioned where we were going to stay and live. Um, and proximity to him was across the opposite side of the country. Um, and we just had a moment where we just decided, you know what, this is not, this is not going to work for us. And this is a piece of advice I'd give to everyone that's going to sign a contract is number one, make sure you're signing it, um, that you know exactly what you're getting yourself into. And two, if you need to leave your contract, make sure that you have a good exit strategy. Um, make sure that the, uh, you know, the cancellation of that contract is going to be um, fairly easy for you, especially for your first contract. Um, so, you know, the person that we signed with was very gracious to let us out. And to this day, I, I still regard him very highly. Um, and then we started looking around. So January, this is, you know, right before COVID, I hastened my search. I looked around at the WHO data coming out and I realized this is something that could really change the world. Um, I called everybody in my network, um, a lot of people through BMC included. Um, and my third year mentor in medical school really helped me out. And he found somebody for me that was just fantastic. Um, and I'm gonna name drop here, Dave McGarry in Flagstaff, Arizona is the man. Um, he is my mentor and I signed a contract with the company that I'm with with him. And I could just go on and on about this guy. Uh, totally amazing, similar personality, interests. Um, he's an excellent surgeon, does a full range of refractive and MIGs. 
family guy with three kids and he likes to hella ski. So I said, sign me up. This is, this is it. Um, so March 8th, I signed my contract and March 11th, they executed it. And that was the day that the who declared COVID a pandemic. And you guys know the story from there. Um, I think the fallout after was what was really painful to watch. Um, a lot of my friends and people ahead of me that were even in fellowship uh, were starting to get their contracts pulled. And that was really painful to have people call me and say, hey, you know, what are you, what are you doing? You know, how, how do I navigate this? My contract just got ripped from me. Um, I don't have a job anymore and I'm graduating in a month or two. Um, what do I do? Um, and so people who are in residency, especially if you have families and you're the single income earner, the one piece of advice I can give you at this point is make sure you have some income diversification um, to rely on, especially during this time of COVID. I'm not sure how the contracts have been going since this you know, event, but I know it's hard to get a job now. Um, so as Gary and Nandini mentioned, you know, location, location, location. And if you have a significant other, make sure they're gonna be happy there because that is the number one reason why people leave their job in the first two years is their SO is unhappy. Um, and lastly, you know, are you gonna be happy there too with you know, autonomy, the pay structure, um, your non-compete, your benefits, auxiliary staff, your patient population, um, Always have a lawyer ensure that your contract is fair. Um, I paid for a service to look at not only my contract, um, but my compensation as well. So those are my key points. Yeah. The, the, the problem I've always had until my recent contract, which was fantastic, um, when I was younger, there was always something in the contract that I was like, well, this isn't great but I think it's going to work out. So it's probably not a big deal. And I really want this job. So I'm just like, and they're not going to budge with it. So I guess I'll just sign it. That is the worst thing you can do. Okay. If there's something in the contract that you don't like, you have to really be willing to address it. And, you know, it, you have to go into a contract with this, with this feeling or this reality that there's a chance this doesn't work out. And there's a chance you're gonna to have to um, get out of this contract one way or another. And so it's really important that there's not something in there that just doesn't sit right with you. And if, if you, know, you gotta figure out what your deal breakers are, I'm not saying don't be um, you know, unreasonable with your requests, but you have to understand that if there's something in that contract that you know you can't live up to, or if it goes sideways, like if you can't live with the non-compete or whatever it is, you just have to understand that that's going to be a negative in the future or a real possible liability. Um, real quick, I want to thank our sponsors, Johnson & Johnson, uh, Vision, Surgical Vision. They've been a, a wonderful sponsor of this, of this program. And uh, we couldn't do it without them. So I want to say special thanks to Johnson Johnson Surgical Vision. And also, um, we do have a couple of questions. And so before we get on to uh, Dagny and Cherie's stories, I want to answer a couple of these questions, and we, or we all can together. Um, the first question is coming in anonymously, which is fine. It says, how do you learn about private practice opportunities? Um, this one, I think a lot of it is really word of mouth. And that's a really hard thing to tell people because it's like, well, if you know about it, you know about it. If you don't, you don't. But like, for example, Netta Shami is one of just a great friend to me in ophthalmology. She's really one of the most fantastic surgeons and people that I know. 
And she emailed me along with a group of friends just a couple days ago and said, I'm looking for a new partner and they need to be about one to four years out. They need to have, you know, willing to do cornea, refractive, cataract, et cetera, et cetera. And so now in my mind, I am thinking, okay, if I meet anybody who is in that position, who's looking for possibly the best job on the planet, in my opinion, to go and work with Netta because she is that great. And Dr. Maloney is just a giant in the field of refractive. Um, you know, I'm going to spread the word. And I guess by way of this podcast, now I am also spreading this word. So um, <laughs> it's Maloney Shammy Vision in, in LA, fantastic opportunity. But it's just really having conversations within your network. So if you're a resident, usually your program director has contacts with other program directors or other private practice people. Um, senior, you know, residents who have gone before you are usually out somewhere. And sometimes, I've, you know, residents will go join a practice where something is going really well. And then if you, if you are in a fellowship, I think that's one of the really big um, benefits of doing a fellowship. Although I did not myself do a fellowship, your fellowship director really probably has the, the ear of a lot of really uh, top-notch surgeons around the country and they can really place you um, with a high recommendation in a, in a great situation. Um, second, uh, anyone have any, any comments on that? Dagny, what about you? Do you have any thoughts on how you find private practice opportunities? Yeah, so word of mouth, definitely through your network and mentors. Um, also reps, I think they know a lot of what's going on in your area. I, I know a lot of people found jobs through their reps. Um, I actually signed up for a lot of recruiter databases. I got a lot of emails from recruiters on a daily basis telling me, you know, this, this job is open in this area that you want. And actually, that's how I found the position that I'm in right now. Um, a lot of other things were just, um, just from friends. So I had a Kaiser position that was made available to me um, through a co-resident who was friends with someone who was working there and they had an opening and they didn't even advertise it to anybody. It was all under the radar. And that was the only reason I found out about it. So I went into an interview with very few other people. And I don't know if you guys know, but in California, Kaiser is like really hot. It's really hard to find a job with Kaiser. And a lot of people actually really love working for Kaiser. So I was excited for the opportunity. So that was literally just a word of mouth, you know, personal connection kind of thing. A lot of the best jobs are not going to be advertised. Like by the time it hits a website or a listing where everyone sees it, it's probably already filled. <laughs> That's very true. That's very true. Yeah, I, I remember um, I got an email from Dr. Bill Troutler because um, my senior colleague, Katie Hatch, had emailed the Cedar Jackson group about looking for a faculty member to join her satellite practice at Mass Pioneer. And that's how it all started. You know, I just, he forwarded me an email and then I, I called her and, you know, the rest was history. And so word of mouth, I think is huge. Asking your fellowship mentors, your residency director mentors, the American Academy of Ophthalmology job board is also great. Um, just kind of filtering through those different opportunities based on location, subspecialty. And aside from private practice for academics, the um, AUPO website also posts a lot of academic job opportunities that are that's constantly updated. So that's also a fantastic resource if you're looking for academic positions as well. I'll, I'll also say, I mean, and I'm a little biased because I love Millennial Eye. Millennial Eye has been really great to me. But if I were a senior resident looking to get connected and finding a great job, I think probably the best thing you could do would be go to Millennial Eye, go there, attend, 
meet Tammy and Callan and Rana and all the other, and the, all the ophthalmologists, um, you know, present a poster. It's very likely that you'll get a free trip somewhere if you have a nice poster presentation and get connected because getting connected is not as hard as you think. But once it happens, so many doors start opening up. And that's probably the best way to find a job is just by the pool, you know, at Millennial Eye, talking to someone and they, so, someone knows someone who needs someone to join their practice. It's, it's, it's a weird networking thing, but it, I swear that's probably the best advice I can give. Um, second question is coming in from Elizabeth Kratara. And I'm just going to read this. How far along into the process do you go with your cohort of job opportunities before you decide between options? So this is kind of about keeping irons in the fire. Do you wait until you get a contract? I'm currently deciding between multiple options. It's hard to know if, when to turn down a possibility, given that I know multiple people are also looking at each of these jobs. Gosh, that's a tough question. Dagny, I want to, I want your advice on this. I think that she brings up a really good point and it sounds like you were in a similar situation, maybe. Support for this podcast comes from Bryn Mawr Communications. BMC produces a number of informative podcast series spanning a variety of topics in ophthalmology. Discover a new show at itube.net slash podcasts. Yes, yes, yes. Um, that was probably me, you know, three years ago. Um, I went without a job for nine months after fellowship because I was still looking for that prize job in Southern California where my family was, where I wanted to be, and where the market was just really, really tough, really hard to find a job. And so I was actually at a point where I had potential offers from Kaiser, um, a private practice group, and the position that I'm in right now. And I can't tell you, there's no straightforward answer. There's really no magic crystal ball to know which route you're gonna take and how long of each option you have available to you to make that decision. Um, eventually at some point, um, each position will, will tell you, will give you a deadline where they want to hear a response by. So that's what happened for me with Kaiser. They're like, I wanna hear by tomorrow. And I ended up giving them the no, it was really sad. But um, at that point I, I weighed all my options and I, I told them no. And the private practice job I was going to take after turning down Kaiser, they ended up ghosting me, <laughs> um, which was very unexpected. Um, and that's something that you'll, you might come across as you're reviewing job contracts. You know, some places they're going to be more flexible to hearing your wishes and some places <laughs> won't be, and they won't necessarily be transparent about it. And you may ask for a little bit, which you don't think is a big deal. And they may not respond to you and may ghost you altogether. So that did actually happen to me, which is kind of crazy. In retrospect, um, it all happened, you know, I'm really happy where I am now. And I'm so glad that I had the opportunity. So it all happened for a good reason. But it can be really tough to be in that position. And so you kind of just have to weigh all your options and just make the best choice at that moment. <laughs> yeah, I, I look at this as like the bachelor, right? I mean, there's so many like so many roses to give out like you know, but I think ultimately the only way to win The Bachelor, and my wife has made me watch so many seasons of this, I'm just nauseated talking about it. You have to pick the best candidate at the beginning and just eliminate all other options because it's really this, you know, paradox of choice. Everything looks attractive. Everything looks shiny and good in one way or another. 
But if you try to split your attention between multiple suitors, you can end up losing out on all of them. Absolutely. So I would say really, really, really try to figure out which job scratches whatever your biggest itch is. Is it location? Is it surgical volume? Is it, you know, practice development, mentorship? Um, And in a weird way, bonus structure. I have found that the best thing you can negotiate is a good production bonus rather than a guaranteed salary because that really aligns your interests with your employer. They're not on the hook for a whole lot to cover your salary. And they know that you're going to be hungry to do a lot of work. And that's a good way to really earn your value. So I think a really good bonus structure can be um, a carrot that is something to look, look at very strongly. Um, all right. We have come to the point where it is time for Cherie to update us on the job search to give us a little bit of a peek into what it's like being a senior resident going through this process in real time. So Cherie, lay it on us. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's stressful. Um, thankfully, you know, hopefully we find out in a few weeks, but hopefully I'll have a year buffer with fellowship. Um, but uh, I am exactly where you were, Gary. Location is my number one um, issue. I, uh, my fiance is in DC and uh, we're done with long distance. We did it. <laughs> Been there, done that. Um, it's, it's about time to just like, you know, be together. Uh, so I um, have made that very um, apparent to my uh, attendings at Wills um, and to kind of anyone who will have my ear. Um, and then I've actually been cold calling practices. So even if they're not advertising a position, I will call them and just say, Hey, I am a senior resident at Wills. I'm hoping to do fellowship in, in, uh, Cornea. Um, and I am, you know, interested in joining your practice or would just love to talk to you more about the practice. And some of them are not looking for positions just yet. Some of them are saying, yeah, I'm actually thinking of retiring in a year or two, um, so let's keep the conversation line open. I think it's a little bit early to really seal anything down unless I were to find you know, the perfect program. Um, and so I'm mostly just having conversations at this point and it's very you know, atypical without these in-person conferences. So a lot of what we're doing is virtual, um, which I think is a little bit of a disadvantage because you can't have that in-person connection. But um, you know, I, I've set up a few phone calls, have made my attendings aware. Um, and then uh, have also just been researching, uh, you know, how to set up a good contract. The AEO has actually a contract negotiation class by Jill Maher. Um, they're very short, quick lessons on, you know, what to look for. So things that I wouldn't have thought about, like what your patient population will be, how much of the payer structure are you set up for? Like, are you going to be seeing primarily Medicaid patients? Um, and how does that impact, like you were saying, your, your productivity um, structure and then um, how to look at things like buying into a practice. What are these questions that you should be asking? So I'm trying to kind of gear myself up with all that knowledge so that when I do have uh, more serious conversations, it's, it's kind of already natural to me. And it's, it's you know, I, I know what I'm talking about kind of thing because this is my first time applying for a real job, which is really embarrassing. <laughs> It's crazy. I think you bring up a really good point, though, of if you have a location that you know you want to be in, just cold calling practices 
That is so smart because like I said, there's a lot of practices out there that are putting feelers out just through their own network. But if your network doesn't overlap with their network, they're not going to know about you and you're not going to know about them unless you are proactive. They're not going to call every resident, uh, you know, who's a fourth, you know, fourth year to see if they're interested, you know, but if you've got that area locked down that you want to be there, just cold call them and start a database Excel spreadsheet of the phone number, who you talk to, you know, what their time frame is, pros, cons, just start your database and, you know, and, and work, work your contacts. I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, you know, one thing I was thinking about as we were talking about, you know, the job hunt is it's really a match between what you can bring to the table and how can the practice sort of, you know, what, what do they bring to the table? How can they forward your career goals and, and, and help develop you as an ophthalmologist? And so I think some of the things that you should think about in terms of what can you bring to the table, I thought about four categories. You guys are welcome to add to this or um, comment, but I think the worst thing is if the practice is looking for just someone to offload the things they don't want to do, right? You want to do surgery. You want to do advanced things. You want to do refractive. If they are saying, hey, we want you to now take all the dry eye patients, which, you know, at one point in my life, I did a lot of dry eye and I ended up loving it. As a matter of fact, it's true. Um, but that not everybody is wanting to get out of fellowship or, or, or residency and then just start dealing with all the very low acuity patients um, or just traveling to satellites that the senior partner does not want to travel to. So now you're on the road four days a week. And instead of, you know, you know, putting in time in clinic, you're, a lot, you're doing a lot of windshield time. Um, the, probably the best thing or one of the best things would be if the practice is so busy that they just cannot accommodate all the patients and they want to grow, but they cannot grow because they are stretched so thin with what they have. And so bring another provider, you're going to lower their overhead. You're going to be productive. You're going to add to the bottom line. You're going to be busy instantly. That is like the abs. I think one of the very best things that, that, um, you know, a practice can offer, um, also, you know, if you're in an area where there's not a glaucoma specialist or plastics or cornea, and you know, there's a need for that, you can actually bring a new service line to the, the practice. And that could be a whole new revenue stream that they've never been able to tap into. And so that's something you can bring to the table. And then the, the obvious one that we all sort of think about is there's a senior partner, he or she is wanting to eventually retire. They need to sort of transition their practice to someone and they need a buyout strategy and you become that buyout strategy. That can be a little tricky because a lot of times you get there with the, and they say they're leaving and then they don't leave. And they, they just stay on forever, um, which isn't always a bad thing, but it sometimes can be a little bit of a little, little frustrating. And then how can a practice, you know, that's kind of what you're bringing to the table to help the practice and how can the practice help you? And some of the areas I've thought of are mentorship and skill development. So kind of like having someone in the practice who's willing to show you sort of peek behind the curtain, all the tricks that they've learned and developed over the years, whether that's refractive or MIGs or, you know, cornea stuff, multifocals, talking to patients, handling complications, all the things that, you know, we kind of know how to do, but maybe we're not experts at, you kind of have a mentor to help you with that. I think that's super important. Um, academic fulfillment and research, you know, Nandini, hopefully you're getting some dedicated research time, or, you know, at some point that will be, you know, a case because in academia, you know, doing research, super important. And then, you know, training residents and fellows, just the, the fulfillment of being with that next generation and, and actually teaching. 
Um, we talked about financial goals, location, and I think ultimately it's finding the right match between what you bring to the table and then what, you know, the practice can bring to the table for you. And hopefully that, you know, that matches. Do you guys have any other categories or thoughts on, you know, what you bring to the table or what a practice can do for you? I think you have to be, you have to kind of have some time for introspection to know how to advocate for yourself because I mean, everyone who's applying is going to be fantastic and you really need to know how to articulate your particular strengths. So are you going to be that clinician who can see a ton of patients and bring a ton of revenue or can you obtain grant funding in an academic setting and, you know, support yourself in that venture? You have to just be able to show them what you can add to their practice that they don't already have. You know, for me, it was that I, I'm really proficient in DMAC and I really like endothelial keratoplasty. I like complex anterior segment, but I'm also super excited about refractive cataract surgery, you know, and laser vision correction. So I could, you know, I could take off, I could offload some of those other patients from other colleagues in my practice and, and, you know, offer that skill set. I think just being able to figure out where you fit in that puzzle is really critical. And I, I think having a senior partner, even as David alluded to, is, is so important because even for me, like one of my goals is to kind of transition to smile. We have the Visumax laser at NASA Inier. So that's a way for me to expand my, my skill set. And I have mentors there who can teach me that. And so that's a way that I can grow. And institutions are excited about individuals who want to try new things and who you know, who want to continue to bring new, you know, perspectives and technologies. And, you know, that's a way to advocate for yourself. And just for academic contracts, as you mentioned, you know, asking for that dedicated research time or academic time is really important. I do have that built into my contract. I'm 80% clinical, 20% research. So that's an important thing to ask for. And also knowing that you have resources, do you have like a set research fund, fund to help you travel to meetings? Do you have a research coordinator a surgical coordinator, you know, technicians, et cetera, all of that's going to make your life so much easier in practice or, you know, as you start to build clinical studies. So really considering those in your contract is key. Everything you listed off, I can like remember that that happened to me at this job interview or that job interview. For example, um, finding a practice that'll let you do the cases that you want rather than throwing you their throwaways. I can think of so many interviews I had where that red flag came up for me because they would ask me, you know, what it is that, what is it that you want to do? And I would say, well, I would love to be able to do, you know, LASIK refractive cases like premium lenses. And he, he literally said to me, oh, so you want to do everything that I do. <laughs> and I was like, um, <laughs> Maybe. So already in the back of my head, I knew that, okay, so these were the cases that he was going to do for a long time and he was going to give me other cases. And so that was kind of a red flag where I knew, okay, I, I need to find a place that will allow me to do, you know, the types of cases that I wanted to do. And you end up otherwise getting sucked into a lot of places that unfortunately, unfortunately you're never able to grow because, you know, your senior partner there doesn't allow you to grow. Um, and so I think it's really important when you go on these interviews to kind of listen for things like that, exactly what you said, Gary. Um, a lot of the other things that you'll hear sometimes about whether a place is going to offer you partnership or not is they'll, they'll, they'll tell you that, um, um, oh, the last person, you know, you always want to ask, why did the last person leave? That's a great question to ask. Um, and you want to follow up with them to 
you know, hear about their experience of when they were working there. Um, and a lot of the times they'll tell you, well, that person just, you know, they couldn't step up to the plate. Um, partnership is always available, but um, as long as you hit these milestones and that person just, you know, couldn't, couldn't live up to those expectations, but, but you're different. I see that you'll be able to, you know, reach that position uh, soon enough. So again, those are things that you kind of have to listen for when you're on your interviews and, and you want to, you know, because ultimately you want to find a place where you can grow long term and you want to see that it's possible, you know, to, to climb up in that, in that, in that, uh, that practice that you want to be, so. It just brought back a lot of memories, a lot of things that you mentioned, Gary. <laughs> I think we've been down similar roads, it sounds like. <laughs> the thing I was bad at, I think, early in my career, I was bad at being honest, I think, and really listening with honest ears or listening for red flags. I was pretty good at convincing myself, oh, well, it just didn't work out. Like you said, oh, they just couldn't step up to the plate. I'm different. I'm, you know, it's going to be different for me. Clearly, I'm, you know, I'm amazing. I know I'm amazing. I'll be great. Um, or, oh, well, yeah, you know, he doesn't really want me to do refractive cases, but, you know, I'll be able to generate those on my own. Or you, you, you're, you can justify things in your mind and tell yourself what you want to hear. But like your future happiness really depends on how willing you are to be really transparent and honest with the practice that's interviewing you mm -hmm. and also listening for the cues that they're giving to you about what they're going to be expecting and what they're not going to do for you. Absolutely. And I feel like we're really, or at least I was because of the situation I was in, I really just wanted to see the ro the rosy side of things. I really didn't want to look at the potential pitfalls and it's only important that you find the pitfalls. The good stuff, if it's good, it'll be fine. I mean, no problem. But you really have to be listening for those red flags or yellow flags. And you have to follow up on that. You can't just be like, oh, sweep it out of the rug. I'm sure it'll be fine. Everything's going to be good. It'll all work out. If you go into a job like that, it's very likely that at some point when you have options, when you have better options, you'll exercise those options. And that's okay. You know, sometimes you just have to take a job because, you know, you got to put food on the table and that's, that's all right as well. Um, David, any thoughts on, you know, bringing something to the table or, you know, a, a practice sort of helping you as well? You know, I, as you were saying that, I, I sort of looked at it as the glass is half full. Right. Um, the optimist. And that's not me. I'm actually the opposite usually. But um, in the end, I just like, you know, this was a very stressful time for me. But I think people coming out need to realize this is not a forever choice, okay? You've got options in the future. And um, there's so many great ways to be employed in ophthalmology. And at the end of the day, we're, we're doing all the same thing. We're taking care of people, we help them see better. And um, that's gonna be part of every job. And uh, you know, I, I don't know where my employment's gonna take me in the future. I'm happy where I'm at right now. Um, and I'm excited for where my future may be. Um, and I think, Episodes like this are really paramount to learn from, you know, mistakes of others, but I realize I'm going to make mistakes going forward and it's just a natural part of career progression development. And uh, you just have to tackle those, you know, one at a time as they come up. Um, I think my, my biggest takeaway from what you guys have said and from what I've learned is just find the people that you jive with. Um, you're going to be happy in your job if you're in a great location with great people. And I feel like there's so many ways to make money in ophthalmology. Um, and at the end of the day, I think we're all gonna get fairly compensated. Um, but yeah, th those are my big things. And I think there's really no perfect job. 
I mean, there's not going to be something that checks every single one of your boxes. So you really have to ask yourself, you know, what your priorities are, what your walkaways are. And if you can find something that generally matches that, like forget all the little stuff. You don't have to negotiate every single line of the contract, you know, like I want the best computer or laptop in my office provided, you know, just focus on the big picture. And also, I, I guess just know that, you know, um, there you know, whatever job you take, you'll, you'll learn something from it. It'll be a good experience. And you can use that for your, your next position when something better opens up. So it's not the end of the road. This is my only decision. I got to It's make or break, you know, just choose, you know, the best that you have based on what it is that you find most important for yourself. Yeah. And remember when you're negotiating that, you know, the practice is taking a, a risk on you also, right? I mean, it's not like, the practice is just made of gold and, you know, they can afford to, you know, take a big flyer and, and, and guarantee a huge salary and, you know, give you all this time off and all that stuff. You know, your first year in practice, it's possible that you don't, that they lose money on you. I mean, it's, it's also, you know, possible they make a whole lot of money off you and it's very, it's highly variable, but they're taking a risk. And, and so I think that it's important that as we, you know, as, as new residents coming out, um, you know, think about that, just recognize that it might take two or three years of working in a practice for you to really, for the practice to break even on you. And they, and so they, they want to make sure that they're getting someone who is um, really hardworking, trustworthy, knows their limitations, willing to ask for help, kind of all the same things that make a good resident, make a good, you know, practice doc. So just, just be mindful of that. I'm kind of on the other side of that now as, you know, partner and, you know, in the near future, looking for another partner, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, the last thing I want is for some, you know, some resident to come in and tell me how much vacation time they want. And, and they want, you know, a company car and they want, you know, like half a million dollars. And, you know, like, I don't want, I'm not here for that. Right. Like, Part of me is like, all right, you know, I want to give you a, a fair contract. It's got to be fair, but like, I'm taking a risk on you. You're taking a little risk on me. You know, it, I think on both sides, you just got to kind of be reasonable. And uh, so I, that's, that's just the, I just have to represent that side that I now am awkwardly finding myself in is as the sort of, uh, you know, par partner. But um, I've said this for a long time too. I do feel like there should be like a Geneva convention for like ophthalmology conference or contracts where it's like, we hereby agree to pay X and the non-compete will be this. And like, you have to have a Geneva convention contract or, you know, it's like across the board, there's like certain things, like you won't torture them. You know, like there's a certain amount of vacation. There should be some standard that like everyone can say, okay, yeah, we follow the, the Geneva convention in ophthalmology. So, it's like the same for everyone. There's no negotiation. In some ways, yeah, it makes well, it easier, right? It's like, yeah, oh, I guess take take her to leave it. <laughs> um, I just want to thank you guys and gals for being a part of this this year. This is our last episode for the year. And um, it's been so fun for me to get to know you and your personalities. And you've contributed so much to the color and the depth and the perspective has been so broadened from what each of you have brought. And it's been a sincere honor to have you guys as my co-hosts on Ophthalmology Off the Grid, Survive and Thrive. So um, with that, I think we'll just leave it there. And hopefully we will all have a happy holiday and a wonderful new year. We've got a, maybe 2021 can be the 2020 we all had hoped for. 
So we can pray for vaccines and um, meeting each other in person and just never Zooming ever again the rest of our lives. Does that sound good? Perfect. Sign me up. Okay. Sounds good. It's been so fun to be part of this. You know, I really hope that, you know, we've shared some pearls and I've learned so much from each and every one of you listening to everything. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. Any final thoughts, Sheree? I I agree. Thank you so much. I've learned so much just being a part of this. It's been a highlight of my residency experience for sure. I feel like I have, um, you know, three very close new friends. Um, You know, whether you guys consider me my friend or not, (laughs) you're my friend. So I really appreciate it. Um, And mentors in the field. And I've really appreciated your perspectives. I feel very fortunate. Absolutely. David Dagny, you guys want to sign us off? Any thoughts? I just, I hope we can do more of this in the future, guys. Um, It's been so fun. Um, You know, like you guys have said, we've learned so much from each other and it's going to be exciting to see where we all end up doing things and what we end up becoming in the future. So thank you for mentoring me in this uh, wonderful journey. Yeah, thank you. Take us home. I was just going to say thank you, Gary, for all your wisdom and insight that you share every time. I mean, I learned so much just from being on here with you and I'm so grateful to share it with the, the whole panel. You guys all provide so much insight and it's just an honor for me. So thank you yeah. so much. We've got a lot to be thankful for. So it's been a tough year, but uh, next one's coming. So get ready. All right. This has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid, Survive and Thrive with Dr. Gary Wirtz. Until next time. Survive and Thrive is an independent program produced by Bryn Mawr Communications and supported by advertising from Johnson & Johnson Vision. This webcast podcast is intended solely for ophthalmic healthcare professionals and ophthalmic industry representatives. By accessing this webcast podcast, I acknowledge that Bryn Mawr Communications LLC, here in BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information presented in this webcast podcast. BMC, along with any all third-party corporate supporters of this webcast podcast, do not endorse, approve, recommend, or certify any of the opinions or information presented or mentioned. BMC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to reliance on in this webcast podcast.